This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. You can find it on page 282 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Happy New Year to you all. Uh, Here in the New Year at New City, we are going to be immersing ourselves in the enigmatic remarkable and ultimately tragic story of King Solomon, the third king 
of Israel. Solomon was, uh, as often called or described as a philosopher king. His wisdom was lauded near and far. He was the primary compiler of the book of Proverbs, and he's thought to be the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, as well as the Song of Songs. Solomon constructed the temple in Jerusalem, one of the wonders of the ancient world. He presided over what most uh, will describe as the golden era of Israel's history as a nation, unprecedented wealth and peace and prosperity. And yet, his story is told at the beginning of the book of Kings. First and Second Kings is a book that's largely about the failure of Israel's monarchy to stay faithful. It's a book about how Israel lost its land and found itself in exile. And that decline does not just come after the reign of King Solomon, but the seeds of that decline exist even during his reign. The seeds are here even in the first three verses of the chapter that Donna just read to us. I mean, look again at verse one. It says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Egypt by taking Pharaoh's daughter as his wife. Marriages to women outside of Israel, outside of the faith of Israel, being tempted then to worship their gods. This becomes part of Solomon's undoing as we Read the rest of the story. Verse 2, it says they worshiped at the high places. These were places of pagan sacrifice. And though Solomon worshiped Yahweh, Israel's God, Moses had warned that this would lead to a kind of syncretism with the religions of the other nations around them. And so it did, again, as you read the story. And yet, verse 3, it says Solomon loved the Lord. All these things mixed up together. It's complicated person that Solomon is, this complicated story of Israel. It's like the writer of Kings is warning the reader, warning us, yes, the temple was magnificent. Yes, Solomon's wealth and wisdom were unsurpassed. But, but, right? There's a, there's a dark side to this. Solomon's story is both a roadmap and a cautionary tale, and very often both of those things at the same time. And that means Solomon is a little bit like all of us, right? Because we're all a complicated mix uh, of our best of intentions and also the seeds, at least, of some dangerous things as well. Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it this way. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through the center of every human heart. The line dividing good and evil, it runs right down the center of every human heart. Solomon's story is a complicated one. Each of our individual stories are complicated as well. Let's pray as we jump into this this morning and begin this series in the new year. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather together for worship. We're grateful for the opportunity to open your word, and we ask for your help this morning that we may not just be hearers of your word, but faithful doers of your word, that you might help us to make sense of our own lives, our own story, but this grander story that's caught up in the redemption in Jesus Christ. And would you help us then to, uh, to begin to make sense of, of how we can be reshaped and reformed according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're, we're jumping into this story a couple chapters in. We didn't read chapter one and chapter two this morning. 
but we're, we're kind of jumping in here at the, the start of Solomon's reign, but just after his father David has died. Now, if you do go back and read chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see in there a lot of the stuff that you can read about if you pretty much read about any transition of power in these old monarchies, right? If you watch any of the stories about uh, the kings and queens of England, for example, you know that these are very often complicated transitions, and one of the most dangerous things to be is next up in the line to the throne, right? Because people are wanting to knock you off. People are wanting to usurp your power. And the same thing is happening here. There was some tension with other members of the royal family vying for the throne in Israel. But with some urging from Nathan the prophet and from Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, David makes it clear at the very end of his life that Solomon is to be the heir and the next king. And so that's where we pick up. The focus of our text this morning is right at the start of Solomon's reign. It's an event where God makes an incredible offer to Solomon. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first heading is Solomon's wish. In verse 5, God comes to Solomon and he says, Ask what I shall give you. Ask what shall I give you, Solomon? And I wonder, how would you answer that question if it were posed to you? What shall I give you? You know, this kind of thing is, is the template for innumerable stories and jokes, right? Usually it takes the form of a genie in a bottle and three wishes typically, right? One version of these stories that I heard recently involves three castaways on an island. Each gets one wish. So the first castaway says, uh, okay, well, I, you know, I wish that I was home. And poof, right? Zapped. And he's home. The second castaway says, well, you know what? I wish that I was home too. And poof, again, same thing. He's home. And the third castaway looks around and says, well, now I'm lonely. I wish my friends were here with me. And <laughs> back again. This is meant to highlight, as most of these stories are, how difficult it is to choose well when the great and powerful opportunity is offered to you. How would you answer Ask, what shall I give you? I hope I would answer like Solomon does. He asks for wisdom. He asks for the means of living out his calling from God in the best way. But if I'm honest, I'm not sure that's how I would answer. Ask, what shall I give you? What would you say? Would you ask for power? Would you ask for uh, prestige? Would you ask for fame? Would you ask for wealth? I think if I'm honest, I'd probably be tempted to ask for comfort or at the very least predictability to life. I'm a planner. I like to know how things are going to go. Tempted to ask for anything that would make life easier, less stress, no thorns, no obstacles, no thistles. But Solomon's response is better. He asks God for wisdom. Verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Solomon asks for the wisdom to fulfill his calling as Israel's king. And we should talk here for a moment about what wisdom is and why, not just for Solomon, but this is something that we all need. We'll get an exam example of Solomon's wisdom in next week's text, but for now, let's just talk about broadly what wisdom is. In Job chapter 28, it says that the price of wisdom is above pearls. It goes on to say, uh, wisdom cannot, or it can't be valued in gold. It can't be exchanged for jewels. In other words, wisdom is a great treasure. 
All the money in the world is nothing compared to the value of wisdom. Now, why is that the case? Why is wisdom so valuable? The main word for wisdom in the Bible is the word chokmah. Hebrew word chokmah. I think we got that on the screen there for you. Yeah, there we go. Uh, It means something different than knowledge means something different even than ethics or morality. Hokma means making the right choice when there's no clear moral law telling you explicitly what to do. And you know, I mean, the truth is, you know, some decisions in life are mainly a matter of knowledge, right? Uh, Like the proper medicine to take in order for you to get better if you're sick or how to solve a math problem. That's mostly a, a matter of knowledge, right? If you just knew the right answer, if you gained the knowledge, you could you could uh, act upon it. Other things in life are a matter of training, operating a forklift, performing a tracheotomy. Right? There's some skill involved, no doubt, but the bulk is training, it's learning, it's repetition, it's practice. So some parts of life are like that, knowledge and training. Other parts of life are mainly about compliance with moral or ethical rules. Right? Should I, you know, how, how should I fill up my expense reports at work? Right? Should I fudge those expense reports? Should I, uh, you know, should I enter into this relationship with somebody who's not my spouse? The, these are largely questions of morality and ethics. But listen, and this is important. Knowledge on the one hand, ethics and morality on the other, that's not all you need in order to live well in this world. You can ace your classes and really mess up your life. You can be a really moral person. You can be a really ethical person and still make some dumb personal decisions. Living well requires more than knowledge and ethics. You need wisdom. I mean, think about all the decisions that you face in life that don't ultimately come down to knowledge or ethics. Should I go out with this person or not? Should I move to this city or not? Should I go to this school or should I go to that school? Should I uh, go for this job? Should I try for this promotion? Should I speak up and confront this person or should I uh, take a, a, a longer approach and wait and be quiet and wait for another time? It's not a clear rule for these things. And yet, if you botch them, it could have some serious consequences. These are wisdom questions. Why is wisdom so precious? Because so many important decisions in your life are made in that space. Wisdom is the ability to live well in the 80% of life that is not directly about knowledge or ethics. A Hebrew scholar, Gerhard von Rad, gives us a great definition of wisdom. Wisdom is competence with regard to the complex realities of life. Wisdom is competence with regard to to the complex realities of life. And that's why we all need it. And this is why Solomon would write later in his life, get wisdom, right? That's the word hokma there. And whatever you get, get insight. That's the word bina, which I'll talk about here in a second. Prize her highly, Solomon says, and she will exalt you. She will honor you. If you embrace her, she will place on your head a graceful garland and will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Get wisdom. You need it. Another aspect of wisdom is captured in the Hebrew word bina. It's there in Proverbs 4 as well. It's the word that's translated insight. It's related to the Hebrew word for between. Part of wisdom is to be able to distinguish between things, right? To make a distinction between one path or another. It's the ability to discern 
between things. You see that word discern in our passage this morning, verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, same root word, bind in Hebrew. The ability, part of wisdom is the ability to notice distinctions and shades of difference when other people only see a blur. Biblical wisdom brings discernment to the skill of daily living. Solomon's wish is for wisdom. And it really, uh, here, then it takes the form of a prayer. And that's really the second heading if you're taking notes this morning. Solomon's prayer, right? Solomon's wish is for wisdom. And the way he speaks to God, this takes the form of a prayer. Now, just back up for a second to verse 5. God comes to Solomon, remember, and says, Ask, what shall I give you? Before we get into what Solomon says, I, I do want you to notice, right, first here, that God is the one who is initiating this conversation. God is the one who's initiating the conversation. Solomon's praying to the Lord. He's asking for something, but he asks at God's invitation. And I get to tell you, it's my privilege, I think, to tell you this this morning. That's true for you as well. That's true for you as well. God is inviting you through the scriptures to come to him with your needs. No one makes this invitation any more clear than our Lord Jesus himself. He says in Matthew chapter 7, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is inviting you, as God invited Solomon, to ask, to seek, to knock. And so Solomon responds to this invitation. His prayer begins in verse 6. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. Solomon's prayer begins with thanksgiving. In adoration, Solomon calls attention to what God has already done in the past, and particularly he focuses on God's character, God's steadfast love. And it's this recollection, excuse me, it's this recollection of God's past action that gives Solomon confidence to ask for present help. And now, O Lord my God, verse 7, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. We see here, this also is a prayer that's born of humble self-assessment. He says, I am but a little child. Now, he's in his 20s when he's writing this, but he feels sort of out of his depth here. I'm but a little child. Then he goes on to say, I don't know how to go out or to come in. I don't know anything. Verse 8, there's so many people now. Not going out and coming in, that's probably a reference to battle. He doesn't have any experience leading troops. He doesn't have any experience leading his people in a conflict. The numbers of people is a reference to the growth of the kingdom of Israel and the complexity then that comes with governing. Basically what Solomon is saying is, I don't have any experience. I'm out of my depth. I'm in over my head. I don't have any experience. Now this is in contrast to his father David. You know, David had all kinds of experience that would have prepared him to be king. He learned to be a leader first as a shepherd. Then he had that moment of truth where he stepped up and he defeated Goliath, the enemy of Israel, that moment of courage. 
He became an armor bearer then to Saul and eventually the commander over Saul's troops. He lived among his soldiers, the mighty men, when Saul betrayed David and tried to kill him. Humanly speaking, David was about as well prepared for this post as anybody could be, but Solomon, not so much. Solomon was a prince. He was his mom's favorite, and his mom was David's favorite. So he had all the privileges in the world. He grew up in the palace. He had it pretty good. But now he's in this job, and he is in way over his head, and he knows it. And so when God says, ask, what shall I give you? Solomon responds in verse 9, Lord, give me what I need to do this job you've asked of me. Lord, give me what I need to be your servant in the place that you've called me. He realizes the weight of the kingship is on his shoulders now. And heavy is the head that bears the crown, right? He, he, he realizes the common good of God's people is at stake in Israel. He realizes the reputation of God, the God of Israel is at stake. And so Solomon prays for wisdom. Ask, what shall I give you? As you were thinking about how you'd answer that, I wonder how many of us answer that question In some way, by saying, you know, ask, what shall I give you? How many of us have in mind the common good of other people when we ask that? God, would you give me whatever it is, right? God, would you give me this so that I can be a blessing? God, would you give me this so that I can serve others, bless others? How much of what we ask for God has to, from God, has to do with his glory, his majesty, his renown? This is what is so wonderful about Solomon's response. Well, how does God respond to this? That's what verses 10 to 15 are about. This is God's response, and we see right away he's pleased with Solomon's prayer. He's especially pleased with what Solomon does not ask for, right? He says, I'm pleased, Solomon, that you didn't ask for revenge on your enemies. You didn't ask for fame. You didn't ask for fortune. In other words, I'm pleased, he says to Solomon, because you made an unselfish prayer. Solomon prayed that he might be a good and just king. He asked for wisdom to embody the calling that God had for him. And this ought to inform the way that we pray as well. Now, on the one hand, you should feel absolutely free to come to God with whatever it is that's on your heart, whatever that's on your heart. But do recognize that God's plans for the world are not primarily about your personal fulfillment. Remember Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. God says he's pleased and he answers Solomon's prayer for wisdom. And then in his lavish grace, the text tells us, God gives Solomon so much more than he even asked for. Verse 13, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, So that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Now you got to be careful with that. They don't make this a utilitarian thing, right? Seek, okay, i got to seek the kingdom so that I get these other things. No, what the promise is about is that when you seek the kingdom, God will give you the other things that you need as well. If you keep your mind on the kingdom of God, if you keep your heart in the mission of God, then God will meet your other needs as well. Like C.S. Lewis says, if you aim at earth, 
You lose it all, but you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in, right? You aim at the kingdom of God, God will meet your needs. Solomon's wish, Solomon's prayer. And then thirdly, and I'm sure there's a better way to say this, but let's talk about Solomon's source. And what I mean here is, uh, where do you go to get what you need? Where do you go ultimately to get what you need? Where do you go, in this case, where do you go for wisdom? Maybe it seems even too obvious to say it, but I think we should be as clear as we can here. The source of wisdom is God himself. The source of wisdom is God himself. Solomon asks in verse 9 for an understanding mind. That's what it says in our translation, an understanding mind. But in Hebrew, it actually, I think, is a little more clear. In Hebrew, it says something more like uh, he asked for a hearing heart. We translate it understanding mind, but he asked for a hearing heart or a listening heart. What Solomon wanted was a listening heart in order that he might be able to pick out the voice of God from all the other sounds, all the other voices that are out there in the world. He wants a listening heart in order to pick out the voice of God from all the other voices in the world. Now, some of you are too young to remember these days, but for some of us, we can remember with TV, right? You used to have the bunny ears on the top of the television and you'd have to, you know, you'd, if you change channels, right, it might not be right. And so you have to get up there and you have to mess with the bunny ears to get the static out and to get the right frequency for the TV in. And in our case, in our home anyway, when we would change from like one football game to another, go from NBC to CBS, we'd have to do it. My dad was, Josh, get up there and do the bunny ear. You know, so I do the bunny. And then sometimes you'd actually have to keep holding on. You'd become part of the antenna, right? So I didn't get to watch the game. Sometimes I'd have to lean over. Same thing happens with radio, right? Like now you can sort of dial into a specific frequency, but before you had to just sort of gauge it, you know, and, and, and try to get the static out, get the signal in. You tune out the static, tune in the signal. And that's what Solomon's saying here with a listening heart. He wants to dial in his heart so that the signal he picks up most clearly is the beating heart of God. The notion of listening is crucial to wisdom. In James chapter one in the New Testament, which also talks about asking for wisdom. James says, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Be quick to listen. That's not just a good way to live. It's actually crucial for gaining wisdom because we need to listen. We need a listening heart. And it does matter who you're listening to, who you're tuned into. It's okay to listen to other people. Christian and non-Christian sources can be great sources of knowledge and wisdom. Solomon uses Egyptian sources of wisdom in the Proverbs. The Apostle Paul knew Greek and Roman philosophy. He quotes them in the New Testament. Augustine, Calvin, Luther, they mined the world for wisdom. But we must listen to God's voice the loudest. We need to tune ourselves to the frequency of God's heart. Solomon would later write in Proverbs chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom begins with tuning ourselves to God. Now, what does that mean practically? All right, what does it mean practically to tune ourselves so that we are, we are able to hear God's voice? How do you seek wisdom? Well, first, just three quick things. First, you grow in wisdom by coming to God in his word. You grow in wisdom 
by coming to God in his word. The God who made the universe has spoken to us in his word. And we'd be foolish not to listen, right? If the God who made all things, if the God who made you and me, if he's spoken to us, we'd be foolish not to listen. You grow in wisdom as you engage in disciplined Bible reading over and over again. And I say over and over again because you don't become wise in a moment. Right? There's a reason that like 700 times in the Bible, a godly life is likened to a path, to a journey. And wisdom is the same way. It's more like a journey than it is like a door. And that's what's so deceiving sometimes about self-help books or the things you might encounter on Amazon or uh, at Joseph Beth, right? They're, they're, they gives the impression that there's a secret to wisdom, right? You think if you can just get this key to success, key to wisdom, you somehow unlock it and open the door and then bam, you'd somehow be wise. But it's not like that according to the Bible. It's a journey. It's, it's something that takes time. And perhaps the primary way that this happens is through consistent Bible reading over years. Years and decades is how you'll grow in wisdom. So that's the first thing. You grow in wisdom by coming to God in his word. Secondly, you grow in wisdom by reading the Bible, not only personally, but in community. That is to say, you've got to have friends. You've got to have friends. You've got to have counselors. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes. In other words, the fool is an individualist. The fool is on an island. The fool is the one who says, I don't need anybody else's advice. I know what's right. But the wise person knows enough to know that it's hard to see things clearly. And you need counselors, you need friends, you need advisors. Do you have people like that in your life? Right? Not just cheerleaders. You need those too. You need cheerleaders. But you don't just need cheerleaders. You need people who will challenge you. You need people who tell you when you're off course and be foolish not to listen. And then thirdly, you grow in wisdom by asking for it in prayer. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. In other words, James is saying the prayer for wisdom is a prayer that God delights to answer. He likes to answer this prayer when his children ask for wisdom. And while we're not like Solomon and that we're not the king of Israel, we are like Solomon in that we are children of God who can call on our father and ask for wisdom. These are the kinds of prayers that you can pray every day. Right? Asking for wisdom in order to navigate relationships in your life. Asking for wisdom as you deal with your job or as you deal with the complexities of school. Asking for wisdom as you make decisions about the future. Asking for wisdom if you're a parent about how to raise your children. Or maybe as children for how to get along with your parents. Listen, all these things are unspectacular, right? I know. Read the Bible. Do it in community. Pray for wisdom. There's nothing flashy here. Doesn't look good on a book title. But if you do these things over and over, year after year, decade after decade, you will grow in wisdom. You will increasingly become a wise person. And I want to say just one last thing, and then we need to be done. In ancient Israel, uh, wisdom comes ultimately from God. We said that. But the role of the king was to dispense wisdom to God's people. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, the glory of kings is to search things out. 
The glory of kings is to search things out. Wisdom is supposed to come from the king to the people. One of the many ways, but the, perhaps the primary way, wisdom was supposed to flow from the king to the very ends of the kingdom. And in many ways, this is a way to read the Old Testament. This is one of the threads, the narrative features of the Old Testament is the search for a wise king, a true king who would rule with wisdom and justice, who would bring with him a kingdom that exhibited that truth and righteousness. Solomon was wise, but as we said earlier, he was also deeply flawed. You only have to go a few chapters to see that this is the case. And the kings that follow Solomon are just a mess. And so the people of Israel are left searching for the real king, the wise king, the true King And when Jesus Christ comes onto the scene, people heard him teach and they said, Mark chapter 6, where did this man get these things? Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom that's given to him? Luke chapter 2 verse 47, all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And then in Matthew chapter 12 about his own ministry, Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Who are we in this story? You know, throughout the morning, we've mostly been putting ourselves in the place of Solomon, right? Asking for wisdom that we need from God. But truthfully, the most common place we ought to be putting ourselves in this story is the people of Israel who are looking for the true king, looking for the king of wisdom and righteousness and justice and the gospel, the good news is that in Jesus Christ, that king has come. He rules with justice and truth. He rules with wisdom and grace and his kingdom even now is breaking into the world. That's what we get to go and announce. That's what we get to begin to embody in the church and as we live on mission with our neighbors and one day as we look forward, this kingdom will come in all its fullness. When Jesus says something greater than Solomon is here, he's saying, receive your king. Your king has come. And so let's pray. And let's uh, come to the table here in a minute with that in mind, our hearts ready to receive our king. Would you pray with me? And then we'll come to the table. Lord, we, we have no shortage of need in this area. We want to live lives of wisdom and grace, and yet we don't have it in ourselves. And so... We take to heart the promise of James chapter 1, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, Father, even now, we call to mind specific areas in our life this week, maybe this year, where we know we're going to need wisdom. We ask that you would give it. And would you meet with us now? Make us not wise in our own eyes, but wise instead because of your presence in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.